well, do we want to, <laughs> do y'all want me to watch this the last five minutes or do we, do we put, it, put it on Zoom or something? I don't know. Yeah, let's watch it. <laughs> okay, share the screen, share the screen. Somehow the Lord gave me a second chance at that moment. I would do it all over again. This dude learns nothing. <laughs> <laughs> This is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where the only food you've found to scavenge in months is a shipping container full of funfetti frosting. So, now it's your birthday all year. I'm your host, Nina. And I'm your host, Nat. And today we're talking with Professor Treandria Russworm, who writes and teaches about video games and new media culture, African-American pop culture, and cultural studies, including an entire class on dystopian games. We're so excited to get to be with her today. She just finished The Last of Us 2. I mean, I just just finished The Last of Us 2 right here on the podcast, but she finished it like a day or two ago, and we're going to talk about it. So get ready for big spoilers and big feelings from all of us. So gaming scholar, new media scholar Anna Everett organized a conference at UC Santa Barbara called Afro Geeks when I was... um, in graduate school. And so it's like, I got to go to this. I don't know what an Afro geek is, but I'm pretty sure that's me. So I went and presented on The Sims. And so it's kind of always doing like game playing on my own and game studies a little ad hoc on the side. And then also studying like the 60s and 70s, because I ended up writing about 60s and 70s Black popular culture uh, as, as a part of my like dissertation stuff. So that's kind of how I started to fuse the two things early on. Um, but then it really wasn't until I was at UMass and just said one day, I want to teach us a class on games. And I really framed it as, a, it was a class on dystopias, which I still teach. And I framed it as comics, uh, new media, and video games was going to be like a unit in that. But then it just sort of grew and became the main part of the class. And so, yeah, th- and then I just started writing about games. It was like, I'm, I started teaching that class, which became really popular. And my department is big enough that they didn't need me to teach other classes. So then I created a game studies specialization and created new classes to go, for, go into the specialization. And so now I just teach game studies classes um, and write about games. Um, you know, after I published Black Is Burning, which was my sort of refresh of the dissertation, um, I pretty much have worked mostly on games since then. And it sounds like you've been playing games since you were a kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I remember playing Pac-Man at my aunt's house and their Atari. Um, so that was that's probably the earliest memory I have of playing a video game. Uh, and then I had, you know, all the systems growing up after that. One of the things that we talked about when we were kind of talking about our own game histories um, on the show was like kind of access to console and the place in the family pecking order, like and things like that. Like we had all the consoles in my house too, but it was definitely like, I was not touching that controller until many losses had occurred down the line of brothers. So right. was, were, were you like able to get the controller in your house? <laughs> well, I grew up as an only child. I do have a brother, but we're 15 years apart. So when I was growing up, um, I would either go to my grandmother's house. I have an aunt who's just a few years older than me. So my younger aunt had, in that context, I was low on the totem pole. Like I would wait until other people weren't playing to play. But, uh, but, but growing up as an only child, I eventually got my own systems. And so there was never um, that particular thing. But, you know, Samantha Blackman and I, Samantha Blackman at um, Purdue University, we wrote an article last year on Black women in video games. And a section of that article interviews black women gaming scholars and like we all tell our origin stories so i i remember talking about pac-man and like being at my aunt's house and like hanging out with the boys because i was always all of my friends were boys and um you know beating them in certain games but also collecting like he-man dolls or he-man action figures (laughs) my earliest um memories or impressions of games uh are fused with these other like toys and objects as well uh and and then also kind of like i don't know sort of gender boundary breaking play 
um, in, in my neighborhood. You know, when I, when I realized I wanted to teach classes on video games, it was actually kind of accidental that I ended up teaching a class on dystopias because I just didn't want at the time to create an intro to game studies class that seemed a little bit daunting. And I didn't know how popular it would be, although I probably could have guessed. And so I had to theme the class in some way. And I chose dystopias only because there were so many damn dystopian games. And so when I was trying to organize it and I was picking up like a wish list of games that I might want to talk about, I realized the common thread was that they were post-apocalyptic or dystopias in some way. So yeah, that's how I ended up teaching a class on dystopias and then just kind of kept it, kept it going. So it was games that led you to dystopias and not the other way around? Absolutely, yes. I know that the course has evolved over the course of 10 years, and I'm just curious what games you're teaching with in that class lately, and I know you just finished teaching a section of it, so maybe some of the ones that bubble to the top as the most interesting objects. Yeah, so in in the class, I run the class as a team-based class, so students are in teams the entire semester, so Um, Sometimes we play a game as a class all the way through. In recent years, it's been Detroit Become Human. It wasn't this year. We didn't play it. Uh, So sometimes for the first part of the semester, we play a game together and analyze and talk about it, or we play snippets of games. We usually play snippets of games and talk about them. Um, But then each team is responsible for playing one game. So this semester, Tacoma, The Walking Dead Season 4, Far Cry 5, Oh, The Legend of Zelda, Majora's Mask. But so the thing about that is I have a list that I sort of present to the class and I say, these are games you cannot choose because there are certain dystopian games that are favorites that I'm pretty sick of talking about. And so I have a banned list, you know, that because I have taught the class for 10 years and I usually teach it every semester. So, you know, games like Bioshock is on the banned list. Uh, all of the Bioshocks, I've taught them enough, Half-Life, you know, and these are games that are definitely worth talking about as dystopian games, but again, I just need to keep it fresh for myself. So um, another favorite is Portal. That is an absolute classic. Well, yeah, Portal is the one where like your gun makes interdimensional doors instead of like regular old holes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The students love Portal and often want to play it. And it's great to think about, I think, but again, I, I, I sort of tapped out on it. That seems like a really fun experience. Do you feel like you have a sense now of like why so many games are dystopias? That's the question, you know, that's the the question we ask every semester. I don't know. You have to catch me on a good day. So like, I think I have a cynical response and a more hopeful response. Um, I think the cynical response is more, you know, there is this, investment in seeing the worst. There's this investment in imagining the worst. And in the best case scenarios, dystopias are these cautionary tales that people can learn from. But I think that because dystopias um, in popular culture are so prevalent, they're such a norm in a lot of ways, actually. It really isn't just video games. Um, You know, obviously young adult fiction, fiction in general, um, television series, you know, it's the thing. And so now my more cynical take on it is it is this sort of, I don't know, it's this chronic enmeshment and a sense of nihilism and hopelessness that just prevails. And it's our fascination with that and our acceptance that this is the probability more so than these are the things to reward, these are the things to fight, these are the things to challenge. A certain sense of like, you know, complacency and like deja vu uh, can set in when when that's all you see. We've seen the repetitious cycle of the same kinds of constructs and the same kinds of stories and the same kinds of endings, right? The conventions of dystopias are exhaustively repetitious. Yeah, I mean, just just hearing you say that, of course, you know, I'm immediately thinking just of like what it must have been like to teach this class like during COVID this semester, because it's like, there's this sort of exhausting litany of this narrative. And then like, there's a sense that like, okay, and now we're kind of like living in that reality right now. Um, It makes me wonder if the students talked about it differently this semester, or if there was a new facet to it, just looking at 2020, along with 
the sort of 10 year history of talking about dystopias prior to now. Absolutely. It's absolutely different. So I was teaching in the class in the spring, you know, when the pandemic started. So I gave students a bunch of different options. And then, you know, in that moment, most of the students, two thirds of the students still wanted to talk about dystopia. Uh, but we shifted gears to really talk about what was happening around us a lot more than I ever have in teaching the class. And so they wanted a way to process what was happening. And so then the class became, you know, had this sense of urgency to it, I think. Teaching the class during a moment when there was more consensus that we're in a dystopia. Mm. Right. <laughs> because we've been in a dystopia, but... Yeah students would not agree. So in unilaterally students now, uh, I asked that question on the first day of classes, are we in a dystopia? Why are we not? It's a way of getting students to introduce themselves. 90% of the students said, yes, they, whatever their understanding of dystopia was, we were, we met it. Um, so I think teaching it in the fall made me a better instructor. Teaching it both times made me a better instructor, but teaching it in the fall, um, I reframed it a lot because at the end of the semester of last year, in spring of 2020, I realized we don't need any more dystopias. I don't want to talk about dystopias um, wow. for the entire semester. <laughs> I, I want to be able to understand what a dystopia is, how that applies to what we're living, what are some of the historical um, functions of the dystopian narrative, the dystopian vehicle, what makes a good dystopian fiction? Why, you know, I wanted to be able to understand that and talk about that, but I also wanted to start pivoting to something else that is not dystopian. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I taught it uh, the, this fall, and I don't think this would have happened if we weren't also very clearly living, if we weren't going through a pan global pandemic and living in a dystopia in a way that more people could understand it and agree. So I, I, I worked a lot with the concept of the critical utopia and, um, you know, utopian thinking and utopian thought and interventions. There were other themes that I made more prevalent in the course this time um, that I think were really important for students to see and understand and figure out that what we need are better options and dystopia is not right. always the way to get there. So that's, that's something else you're talking about is other options yeah. besides uh, besides like rec just recognizing that the system is bad. <laughs> right, right. What are the options for survival? So the thing that is encouraging um, but about, you know, most of the popular dystopias, what you see in the more popular dystopias are, you know, badass people who are resisting, who are trying to change. Yeah. The best of the dystopias and the best of the worst. You see badass people who are fighting for change. And so to focus on that as a part of what we take away from what dystopias can offer us and how we can leverage that to now into action, into vision, into actions, um, I think was the missing component of that class. And hopefully it will always be there to really think about what action looks like, what resistance looks like in the dystopia, rather than just kind of being like enamored with the dystopian frame and concept. Uh, but, but thinking about, you know, your heroes in all of these dystopian tales are usually fighting for something. They're usually trying to fight to change the system. Not always, you know, but in the mm -hmm. best of them, they are trying to fight to change the system. Yeah, it, it it's interesting. It's like um, what they're fighting for is maybe the dividing line between the kinds of dystopias that have like some kind of like, you know, utopian or like queer thrust, <laughs> like in, in terms of thinking about like queerness as like just something else, you know, in in like the broadest sense. Yeah. And the, the question is sort of like, what is it that the resistance is for? Like, is it is it for reinstating something from the past or is it for something something new? Yeah, yeah. And most often it's for reinstating something from the past. It's 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 for fighting for what we already had, for getting back to whatever was construed as normal. Um, and so, you know, I think what was helpful and instructive about listening to what people are calling for in this moment is for us not to return to what was pre-existing. The pre-existing was part of the problem. Pre-existing structures, pre-existing resources, organizations, you know, these, these this was part of the problem. This is why, you know, the pandemic is so bad in the United States. Part of the reasons why it's so bad. So I think students got that, you know, and it wasn't a struggle because 
well, you know, one of the exercises we do is once we figure out, you know, what are some tactics of like dystopian um, repressive regimes and we figure out, you know, how to understand that in the context of dystopian media and narratives, we just applied those to the headlines in any news outlet, in any newspaper or news outlet that you want go and see how many of these different tactics are relevant in the life that we're living in today. And students are like all of them, you know, it's like basically all, it doesn't take very long to figure out that like, Oh, all of the things that we said are bad about like what the dark future can hold, you know, we see that happening around us, you know? So, but for, for activists and organizers to call for, you know, the radical, um, radical change for radically, reimagining you know what we need on the other side i think uh is the kind of call to action that we want people to feel when they play a dystopian game or they watch a dystopian film um but but quite often that doesn't happen right you know um because the 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 object the the material contains its own sort of like cathartic effect. You go through all of the emotions and you imagine all of these things, but it's so contained to that uh, experience and it's not applicable. It doesn't feel applicable or relatable, or you don't have the desire to do that because you're already spent. You already lived it. You know, I lived it in my gaming life or I lived it in my reading life or my viewing life and it was hard and I did it, you know, and I fought through it, but how to, get from that space to, you know, what we need outside of those texts. Um, so that's kind of what I'm focused on now. And I don't think I would have been as committed or as aware. I mean, after all the years of teaching the class, that that was a component that was missing. I mean, we're good. I'm in an English department. We're really good at the theoretical, right? This is one of our, uh, this is one of the critiques is that we're really good at, telling you why it's bad and how it's bad and really understanding how fucked up it is. But, you know, then what, you know, what else, what will, will change it? And not just theoretically what will change it, but how do you put those ideas into action? So I'm much more interested in having the class try to do that type of work uh, around creative projects and then around tangible, like when you leave this class, I teach that classes for seniors. So it's really sort of like this crucial moment where it's all seniors, they're graduating. So where do you go from here? Yeah, I love the idea of sort of talking about video games as a starting point and then like noticing these certain kinds of oppressive themes or threats and then being able to say like, like the thought pattern you go through is like you see something in real life and you're like, oh, that's just like in blah, blah, blah game. And I remember the reaction I had in that game when I see that thing in real life. And like when I had the reaction in the game in my class, I was like, this is wrong and this is bad. Now I can like kind of come out of that and be like, the systems in games are also existing in real life. And that reaction that I had there is a reaction that I can and in fact should have here if I stand by the moral orientation I brought to the gameplay. Right, right. I, yeah. I, that's so great. Like, I just love that as like a pedagogical attitude about like breaking out of that shell that, I mean, games create a shell too, for the reason you exactly said, it's like this contained experience, but you're saying like, no longer is this contained. It never really should have been. And it wasn't, but people made it that way, you know, or I feel like there's this escapist thing of like wanting to play things out and then have it just be separate. Right, right. It's not separate. It wasn't, yeah, you know, that's 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 the thing is that um games are tough because, you know, it's the play space. It's the it's the entertainment. It's the toy. I mean, this is it's it's the I'm going to do this because I need a break from the pandemic. So I'm gonna play a pandemic game, you know, to get a break from the pandemic. Which interestingly enough, you know, the, the the dystopian films were all bestsellers again 
why are you making that turn? It's, you know, maybe pre uh, pandemic or prior to that moment, it might be escape, but we already know there's a pedagogical purpose in the works. And that's partly why people turn to them. You know, why is contagion like a bestseller? Why did it like crash Apple servers in March and April? You know, because everybody's downloading this film, you know, where it's an outbreak, you know, that started potentially with the bat and, you know, took over people had to socially distance. And it was really similar you know, to what we're seeing with COVID-19. So people are not watching that to relax. They're watching that to figure shit out. They're watching that to see how this ends. You know, they're watching that to learn something. You know, there's always a culture war around games and, um, you know, their social significance or their political significance. There's always this, you know, the hate games are also a space to relax. They are that and they are, you know, teaching us and we're learning and we're receiving information whether we want to or not. Um, and they're not created in this escapist vacuum whatsoever, right? They're yeah. created in context. And so we play them in context. But I, what I think and what I propose is that even in the relaxing play spaces, you know, I think basically when you finish a game, you kind of need a debriefing process. You know, you need to talk about it. Like we're going to talk about The Last of Us 2. You need a debriefing document, conversation, something. You need a discourse community, right? Because I think it can help you uh, make more clear what how you can apply it to noun or what you can do if that's your ambition and you don't want to just leave it as this contained, frustrating, unnerving, or illuminating experience. What do you want to do, you know, with what you've gained from that experience? So, yeah. right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I obviously feel like the next question is how do we apply that to the last of us too. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> like if you guys are ready to go there now, just yeah. to contextualize, I didn't get a chance to watch it. So I'm going to, Lena, I'm going to let you <laughs> kind of talk back and forth with Treandria a little bit um, and just listen and not minding spoilers at all. Awesome. So psyched. Well, I mean, I feel like we are like just the luckiest people in the world because we get to talk to you like right after you finish this game. I was thinking like a good place to begin is just kind of where we left off when we finished episode one was this kind of like imaginary bubble around that episode where The Last of Us 2 didn't exist. And we were trying to like imagine a beautiful future for Ellie. And I don't I don't know if you got to hear the end of that, but we were like thinking about Ellie like just having some other options than just like going back into the sort of persona, which is this like murderous clone of Joel. And that like, we could remember that there are other things that one can do in the world, like say, you know, make cordyceps art installations or like become the person who, who like looks for other folks who, who are immune, you know, like maybe she's not the only one questions like that. Um, And none of that happened. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I did listen to the episode and it was great. It was great to hear that and think about it. I think that's a great exercise. It's a really important project. I think it's a really important process to see, like, can we imagine even what's better than this? And again, that's one of my cautionary takes on so much dystopian fiction and media is that it's not imagining that at all. It's not giving us the literacy. It's not giving us the rhetoric um or the imagination to do that work it's only giving us the imagination to see mm-hmm. like oh yeah 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 i know about zombies but it's not giving us any ability to really dream in a radical um and restorative way mm-hmm. so i love that part of your episode in, in dreaming you know um we don't get it not in the last of us too we don't get anything like it like there's so many good options so um you know, I'm really bad at plot and sort of summarizing what happens. But if, let's say like, you know, plot is like three or four sentences of what happens in The Last of Us 2. Well, Joel Joel is killed in The Last of Us 2 right in away. The first half so now, yeah. Yeah, he's, and it's like, whoa, you know, um, he's murdered in the first minutes, it seems, of this game. Ellie actually sees the murder. He's captured, and then I think she stumbles in on it and, and they capture her, but she actually watches um, the character, Abby, murder him with a golf club I feel like she's been thinking about that for years like she definitely yeah. found that putter 
on some like overgrown <laughs> golf course outside of jail. She was like, this is the one. I'm going to do it, motherfucker, and take you out. So part of what you play, a good half of what you're playing um, in the game is as Ellie f- killing to, to avenge Joel's death. You know, she's finding these people who are part of this group and killing them. And the big leader, you know, the woman who kills the, the person who kills Joel is Abby. And that's, that's Ellie, that's Ellie's quest. And then, you know, structurally, this game is really interesting to me mm-hmm. uh, in so many ways, but you do that, you play a half of it as Ellie, you know, from an identification standpoint, you're like committed to Ellie because that was your, it was the only choice you had was playing as Ellie. Um, who's on this quest for revenge, whether you agree with it or not, whether you think it's a good idea, because you're like, oh, Ellie, by the way, you're immune. Why can't we go do something else with our time? Yeah. I mean, Joel is dead. It's a little, it's too bad, but there's a lot of shit going on that you might be able to help solve <laughs> if you were just trying to find his killers and kill them. But then you have to switch and play as Abby. Yeah, so you've like played more than half the game. You fought your way through Seattle with your pregnant girlfriend at your side, murdering all these members of the Seattle militia group um, until you finally find yourself face to face with Abby. And all of a sudden the game just switches perspectives and you find yourself back like in time a few days before playing the game as Abby and meeting all these people that are Abby's friends and Abby's like compatriots. And they are the exact same people you just killed. And when I had, I had to watch walkthroughs to get through certain parts of this game and, you know, I would read the comments on the walkthroughs and people mm. lost their shit. They hated the structure, which is fascinating to me when, when people is. don't like something. I'm really intrigued by it. They hated the shift to Abby because they've already attached to Ellie and this revenge plot. They hated shifting to Abby and playing from her side. And you don't just play as Abby, like, um, withstanding Ellie's murderous hunt. You know, you actually play these other moments in Abby's life and so you play as her for like a chunk of the story and you find out she's the daughter of this doctor that Joel murdered in the Fireflies in part one. So this is her revenge tale. That's why she kills Joel is because he murdered her people, her father, people who were working toward a vaccine. Um, he murdered all of the scientists, all the potential revolutionary scientists who were scientists and doctors yeah. and organizers and Marlene. I'm not right. never forgiven uh, this this story and the direction of murdering Marlene when she and you actually get to play through and see her empathetic response that yeah it might end up sacrificing Ellie and she's trying to talk to Joel about it there might even have been a middle ground I don't know we don't know uh, it wasn't imagined in this text but you get to see from that perspective what happened and why Abby is pissed off and goes and hunts down Joel and murders him early in the game. And in my opinion, in my experience, Abby's story and Abby's side was such a relief. It was so much more totally. interesting. It was so queer. It was so, I was just like the people in Abby's universe, I liked better as well. You know, her Absolutely. friends. So you play as Abby and then the game culminates. This is a long way of saying the plot, but the, but the game culminates. Um, you play as Abby, you see who her people are. And there's the trans character. Lev is one of the characters right. that Abby takes under her re- her wing. Um, there was a lot of commentary about, you know, the character design of these characters and even the plot, the subplot with Lev, uh, the the character and his sister. Um, anyway, they well, Abby and Ellie have a lot of fisticuffs moments, which I'm really interested yeah. in because these are battles for recognition. But they have this big battle and Abby has the chance to kill Ellie. Uh, but Lev, who's the trans character, is like her conscience and is like, don't do it. You don't want to become this. And yeah. so Abby frees Ellie yet again, lets her go. You know, Ellie's like beat to crap. And Dina, who's Ellie's girlfriend uh, and pregnant. There's a whole subplot. Mm-hmm. There, but the, yeah. the, the family, the queer family unit, you know, Abby lets them all live. Except for, yeah, accidentally like killing the baby's daby because Dina's pregnant. <laughs> So many pregnancies, so many queer family units. It's like we're going to brunch or something at like one of my 30 year old queer friends. So many queer family units there that it's like hard to explain. But there's a symmetry there because Ellie kills Abby's ex-boyfriend's girlfriend is pregnant and Ellie murders the pregnant woman. And so the symmetry is that Abby doesn't do that. She has a moral center that Ellie doesn't have. And she's like, 
bitch basically she's like basically i don't ever want to see you don't ever let me see you know she doesn't swear and he leaves her alive you know and that is you think the end of the game but it is not there's still like 10 percent more of the game after that ultimate you know battle between these two and the last few moments, uh, you find out that Abby and Lev, you play as you play as Abby, and and then her friends, Lev, who she takes under her her wing, they get um, captured by I guess human traffickers by Fedra, which is like a militia military group, but they basically human trafficking as well. Like I don't know, I haven't looked, looked at them. right. I mean, it's sort of what's become of of the cops. Yeah, in- yeah, like I, yeah, yeah, exactly. So so they are captured by them and tortured and really um lynched there's a lot of lynching in this game they're almost they're almost lynched and ellie can't let it go even though she has a queertopia so so at those last moments ellie has gone back with her girlfriend dina dina gives birth to this adorable baby video game baby so so cute with these babies they did a good job on the cutest baby (laughs) around on the farm and you get to see but ellie is also suffering from post-traumatic stress because she's murdered all these people and still grieving the loss of joel and so you know she has the chance to embrace something else other than revenge and she decides to forsake the queer family unit that she has and potential future and says, no, I still got to go find Abby. <laughs> After all of that, she's like, I gotta go find her again. So the, the worst, saddest moment in video game, in my video game playing history, I think, of this final, final, final battle between Ellie and right. um, Abby in the ocean. Both of them, like Ellie has been cut or something. So she's like wounded yeah. and limping. Abby, who, by the way, has been the strongest, physically strongest character right. in the game. She was a beast. Yeah, she's ripped. And awesome. Yeah. And so she's emaciated because she's been captured for X number of months or whatever. She's lost her, her muscles. And you have to fight as them in this water, in the ocean. And you're basically choking Abby. And I tried to fail at this so many times. I tried to do nothing and let Abby kill Ellie because I'm like, look, you had so many chances here and you can't get over it. You can't do that. You can't do that. And it was so awful. And so it's quick time events. So you're pushing X, you know, hold X to like choke the crap out of her or hold a square to choke the crap out of her. And then finally Ellie has some inkling of moral... Uh, grounding and just walks away, you know, and lets Abby live and Lev, the trans characters, like yeah. in the boat, half dead as well. And then they sail off in their sad little boat, and you're back as Ellie for the last few moments. There's more flashbacks with Joel. So that's not an efficient way of summarizing the game, but you can probably tell through my summary of the game how I feel about it. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that comes up there. I mean, there's so many scenes and places we could drill down on and all of these queer relationship configurations, there's dead babies, there's some queer ex-evangelical representation, which I'm kind of excited about. And I mean, there's way more than we can discuss in half an hour. But I guess one thing that comes up for me, you know, the game's mechanics are still this very non-consensual, like there's still only ever one way for the story to go. But then time in this story, as you were pointing out, is just, it's a mess. So many flashbacks, fantasies, dreams, perspective switches. And the the flashback of a flashback of a flashback moments. There's so many of those um, subversions of time that people also don't like, but I like that they don't like it. You know, that you're always backtracking. (laughs) You think you're progressing and then it's like, oh, another flashback. It's from teenage Ellie now instead of, you know, young adult Ellie because we had to go back and tell you. So Joel is actually in this game a lot, even though he's dead. Well, I I was just going to say, I wonder, I feel like, I wonder if those flashbacks aren't the game being a little bit self-aware with how preoccupied it is with the past, you know, yeah. like all of these characters that are just so obsessed with looking backward. It has to be. It's because it's almost a joke at a certain point. Like you literally can play a flashback within a flashback because Abby's whole storyline is flashback because you get to the moment right. where she's about to kill Ellie and that's when her story starts. 
And then all of Abby, all of Abby's memories are also flashbacks within the flashback structure. So, right. <laughs> so I, it's gotta be, so it's gotta be intentional. It's so like hyper, hyper done. I mean, we get this one scene where Ellie finds out what Joel did in the Salt Lake city hospital. Right. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Did that go how you expected? Like her, like, what were your impressions of that scene? And like, what, what you learned? Was it, was, was it kind of what you thought you would learn about them? Like, was there, was there anything unexpected? Um, about the fireflies or about Ellie? About the fireflies, about Ellie's reaction to it. Yeah. Um, no, it made me like the fireflies even more. And it made yes. Marlene's murder seems even more unnecessary because what you do is yeah. you play, and when you play as Abby, is it humanizes that whole team of what they were doing. Your father, the surgeon, you know, he's kind of dopey, but whatever, we'll go with it. Um, and, you know, you, you, you still have the structure of this is like this patriarchal revenge tale. Like it's a revenge tale on yeah. behalf of the fathers who were killed, yeah. right? Like that's what these young, um, women characters are doing is fighting for their fathers. They're fighting their father's fights, right? The whole time yeah. of us too. And so that's annoying, but, um, but you play as Abby, you see more of those folks who, again, I just found way more interesting than people in Ellie's group. She should have teamed up with them, you know, um, but she and so the one good thing that comes out of that is that she goes back to the hospital and figures mm-hmm. out that he really was lying and that it wasn't as he said and she confronts him so these are all wins in my book like you know um, she's yeah. able to confront him and she's not able to forgive him she says you know basically right. fuck you you need to tell me the truth right now or else I'm leaving and so he confesses to her so I, I yeah. thought that Ellie, it was a win that Ellie confronts him and is not okay with his decisions, right? She says she wanted her life to count, or her life to be, yeah. Um, which, you know, not not so much she doesn't say, like, I want a chance to save humanity, you know, I want a chance to have a vaccine, but she wanted to be special. She's already special. So, you know, she really wanted to be able to live that out, and Joel took that away from her and didn't allow her to make those decisions. Yeah. And then at the very end of the game, in the very last flashback that we just watched together, um, Ellie... At has you know talked to Joel because she's had her first kiss with Dina at that point again it's another flashback that's kind of out of order but Joel says to her basically I would do it all over again he's outright I know. do it all over again I don't care that you're pissed at me and so that is a crystallizing moment in the fight for recognition which is something that I've written about and thought about a lot and there's no mutuality there. So what we have is everybody dying for a relationship that has no inner subjective um, realization. It isn't a mutual. Like it just exists in Joel's head. It's all fantasy. Yeah. Like Joel, Joel doesn't see Ellie. He has to be able to recognize Ellie's desires. That's part of recognizing a person as a person and not as a construct as your construct is yourself. So he doesn't recognize that he can't say, that is your wish, Ellie. I wish I had done it differently. I wish I had given you that chance, right? That's what we need. Right. Like, no, yes. I've done it all over again, damn it. And Do it all over again. Like, my feelings are the most important. And she says, well, <laughs> yeah. I hate you for that, but I'll try to forgive you if I Which can. Which he's just like, well, that sounds great. That sounds great. You know, he's happy with that admission. Yeah. Like, I guess I'll try to forgive you, but I don't think I ever will. And that's how the relationship yeah. ends. And we see that what drives her is guilt over making the ha- of of, of right. being her own independent right. self, right? Right. It's like when is is her trying to forgive him then the whole rest of the game wherein she yeah. murders dozens and dozens and dozens yeah. of people. That's what forgiving Joel looks like. Everybody <laughs> has to die while Ellie grapples with the fact that she, you know, didn't she? She, she couldn't forgive him for that, so she's trying to forgive him through that violence. Not fun. That's not none of that is fun. None of that was fun. But yeah, no fun is not a word that I would use to describe this game. Yeah, it's it's interesting too that that moment of like you're talking about this like recognition and failure to recognize that Joel can't recognize Ellie's desires doesn't really see her as a separate human being and it's really interesting to me that they have that moment happen in the middle of a of like your standard coming out scene you know <laughs> like they're like on the porch and it's like dad's like she really likes you and and kind of showing himself to be this like like accepting father in the sense of the the struggle in this game is not over whether or not he's going to be okay with her being queer like but instead he like 
she she's like okay well fine you know like you see that i'm like you don't have a problem with me liking girls but you did destroy my chances at happiness <laughs> or like my chance to mean something in the world he's saying because he's separating her queerness from her humanity he's saying okay you're queer you can be queer i'm, I'm cool with that maybe you should give that girl a try but then he's saying but i don't see you as a person you know you can have that right. desire but i don't see you as a person with overall independent desires for me he's that her queerness is permissible to him but her desire to be you know sacrificed for a vaccine or to fight with the fireflies or whatever that stuff is not allowed right the more um unforgivable self-distinction is the fact that she sees her future differently you know her future and her purpose in the world differently so he's like yeah i don't care about your girlfriend but no, you know, you can't be the vaccine. Like you can't, yeah. you can't offer a vaccine to humanity. That's asking too much. Yeah. And I feel like that's the way the game does representation as a whole too. It's it like, is. it's okay for you to be X, Y, Z, like trans, black, queer, you know, Asian, like, every, like all of the different, not, not standard grizzled white guy mm-hmm. <laughs> characters but not okay for you to be a person. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was not okay to be black in The Last of Us 2 either. Unfortunately, no. the black people get a raw deal yet again. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, and I and I wrote about this in The Last of Us 1. I was like, you got to imagine, you know, with, with the two characters, the brothers, uh, Henry and Sam, yeah. like you got to imagine different outcomes because blackness yeah. is so overladen and overdetermined as a site of struggle in the apocalypse and not in the apocalypse, right? And we already have this litany, we already have this history of how blackness and suffering work out and play out in narrative culture and outside of narrative culture, you have to make different choices. There's a sort of special case Mm. to pay attention to. And in this case, the black people all die again. They're murdered. Again. Again. So there are are not that many significant black characters. We still have Marlene because she's in all these flashbacks or she's in a couple of flashbacks. So we're reminded of her, her, her importance in the the previous one and how that, you know, humanity was robbed of somebody like her. Uh, And then you have Isaac, who's a sadistic leader of the wolves. Like he's a black man. And that was another one of the most disturbing moments in video games for me. And a moment where Mm. he's torturing, um, these this yeah there's like these torture chambers and he's just right his eyes are dead and he's there's this nude person that he's like i dismembered like he you don't see it happening but you see him you see the sort of aftermath of it and him sitting there right he's a cold heartless he's a sadist and um that's the enclave that abby is in you know the the wolf or Mm -hmm. the wolf group and uh, so he's the black dude. He's he's killed though. I mean, just desserts because they present him as an awful character. Uh, he's definitely no Marlene, so you don't feel cheated necessarily that he's murdered. Yeah. Uh, and then one of other one of Abby's other friends, Nora, yeah, Nora is, yeah. is tortured by Ellie. Like, well, Nora was bad. Nora was like, I'm not telling you anything, you know, because Ellie's hunting down Abby's friends, and Ellie and Nora is like, I'm not telling you anything. And Ellie, immune Ellie, knocks her into the basement with all these spores, so she knows that Nora is going to turn. But then, even as Nora is turning, she like tortures her. Beats you don't see all the torture, but you see is you know it's, you see some of it. Ellie tortures her, so is like covered in her blood to find out where Abby is. So even as Nora is going to die anyway, Ellie is like ruthlessly Joel and um, yeah. the crap out of her, tortures her in some way. So those are the black people, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Uh, or remember, there was a few, you know, other moments like um, other NPC characters. There's a couple of boss, there's one boss battle that's pretty disturbing of this like really large black man. This was like three times the size of all the right. other characters. And again, that's just felt like a missed opportunity because it's a grotesque it's a grotesque like black buck kind of trope and so if you're gonna do these over large characters you want to have some cultural sensitivity and awareness again in terms of historical tropes that you probably don't want to make that a black man like play around with what that Mm -hmm. character is and represents um but it's pretty awful and his expressions his animations and everything are awful so that's the list of the black people they don't survive the apocalypse yet again in the last of us and uh, can be murdered at will. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I found that scene with Nora especially disturbing too, because 
it it just felt like it mirrored the scene with Marlene at the end of the Last of Us One so much. Totally. It was one of the, like including the like perspective from which you see her die, the like position she's in. And I, it felt just like not only did they not learn, but they were just like it just felt like they were like poking. Yeah. No, they wanted that symmetry. They wanted to show that Ellie could go there. She could go to the dark place. Yeah. What really irritates me is how adored Joel is. So many people still love that father daughter relationship that this game, you know, forces and don't critically can't critically navigate it. You know, that Joel's pretty freaking mm-hmm. terrible. And Ellie yep. becoming Joel is also terrible. They get, at least in the comments and things that I read, they get that Ellie's quest for revenge is ruining her, but they don't really connect it to how horrible Joel was in the beginning, but that's because black life has no consequence, right? So murdering the fireflies, the resistance, the revolution, you know, whatever that is, um, that's okay to kill off anyhow. And then, you know, basically having like a black woman as a central figure in that effect, uh, also okay to kill. And so, but I just, but even the part about like Joel being pretty terrible, like it it can't, people don't have a critical, um, read on that again because of the context because uh black life is so inconsequential well you know i'm really interested in that like just thinking about when people made it like both one and two i'm always just so curious with last of us franchise in particular if there was an interest in doing something like what they do in um the game spec ops the line which i haven't played but i know is supposed to be an experience of playing as a murderer and slowly realizing that you are doing this and learning from having inhabited this role, the true horror of this and the horrors of war. And that like, it's supposed to be this like sort of parable-esque story. And like with Last of Us 2, it's like, like I can imagine there's someone on that team who's like, after you play this, you should realize that you were essentially playing as a mass murderer who's just going around killing people and and basically just anybody that's in your path just mowing them down but then like i don't believe it's that self-aware from how it played out in both one and two and especially having heard the plot of two it's like i have a real hard time believing that that's what they were all agreeing that they were gonna do well, I think there's no awareness around what it's doing with race. I think that it has a pretty low level, um, you know, take on diversity and inclusion. Like it has a diversity right. and inclusion optics or agenda, you know, which is the very lowest, very like lowest level of entry there. So it has that because it has diverse representation. It has characters, you know, uh, from from different race, race and ethnic groups, you know, different gender presentations, like. There's a lot of diversity in The Last of Us too. What I think right. it wants you to be self-conscious and aware about that as like a good mm-hmm. thing that like we're progressive because we have this representation. It's not critical about its own stance on anti-blackness, blackness, anti-black racism. Like it's not aware that that's going on at all. Ironically, mm-hmm. even though it has this sort of diversity inclusion agenda light, we'll say. So, so there's that. But I do think it wants you to be self-aware about Ellie's moral decay. Like I think it wants mm-hmm. you to see, you know, because you have Abby and you're playing as Abby, who pretty quickly seems to realize that like, you know, it haunts her that she killed Joe and how she killed Joe, even though she did do it to avenge her father. And even though Joel was wrong, was he was wrong and she avenged her father. Very wrong. Murdered everybody. Like, I can't even really complain about that choice. But Elle, but Abby uh, learns really quickly that, you know, that revenge imperative is killing her. It's not healthy for her. And so she then also maps on, sort of um, transfers all of her emotions and regrets and, um, you know, stuff onto the trans character, Lev, and his sister that she has to fight for because they're like her, become her moral compass. She, They are a member of an opposing group, you know, from her. Right. And she crosses boundaries to save them. And so, but, but Abby learns these lessons earlier. So that's why I think it's pretty self-aware that like this revenge imperative is not the thing to live for, right? She is mapping and transferring all her shit onto these other characters as well. But I would argue that something closer to mutuality happens between her and at least Lev eventually. 
uh, arguably, there's more of a chance there for that to, to, to blossom um, than anything yeah. in Ellie's life. And so Ellie doesn't seem to learn that until the very end. I think the game wants you to know that being on this murderous revenge quest is not what you need, right? It's not the, the healthy route. Mm-hmm. But it does so at such a high cost. That's its only investment. Yeah. yeah. Right? And um, nothing else really matters. No vision for what a future could look like. No possibility of a vaccine. I mean, Ellie still, Ellie is like Neo in the Matrix. Because Keanu Reeves, Neo in the Matrix drives me crazy because he's so clueless. Everybody is like, <laughs> you're the one. He's like, really? No. <laughs> Ellie is like that. You're immune. Have you ever met? She even has a real explicit conversation with somebody. Have you ever seen a yeah. immune person? And they're like, uh, no, not really. <laughs> you know, like maybe I'm the only one who's immune. Like you're the one. And she's so not about that, right? She's so she says that was her. She regrets that Joel took that from her, but she doesn't create a way to make good on that. She doesn't create options for you know using her immunity to save anybody. She only. Um, uses it to kill people like oh I don't need a mask yeah. when I'm I'm like in this you know area with spores I'm like I can't die from you know the clickers the zombies whatever they are she only uses it to her personal advantage so right. the most frustrating thing that I was complaining about in The Last of Us 1 is it's this inner subjective this narrow vision of what's good you know, between people, yeah. it's very personal at the personal level. Yeah. It's inner subjective. Like I get something from, from trying to recognize you. You get something from trying to recognize me that has no grander implications other than destruction in the case of the Ellie and Joel paradigm. So it's a cost to society that these two have this dialectic, right? This dialectic is, is toxic. It's poisonous. Yeah. It's overvalued. And that's the thing that fans love. They love Joel. They love Joel. His decrepit murderous self. They absolutely love this dude. But he's flawed. He's like good dad flawed, you know? And he's a killer. He's a, he's a racist killer. <laughs> Ellie replicates that, you know? Um, yeah, he replicates it. I think that's Naughty Dog. Like, honestly, that's what The Last of Us 2 has convinced me of because. You know, I think there's so many ways, like you were talking about all those parallels between the characters and their lives and the plot points. And there's, you know, for Abby too, Abby's supposed to be this sort of better Ellie. And I think in a lot of ways, it feels that way to play that character. But in the moment when Abby decides that Lev is the is the sort of like object for her, right? Like, it's like this literal moment where Lev is like, aren't they your people? And she says to him, you're my people now, right? And then they go about just carving a path through friend and foe. Like you have people, you're talking about recognition, literally saying, Abby, what are you doing to Abby as shooting these people that are her comrades? And, and to me, I'm sitting there, you know, watching that let's play and just thinking like, did they get the news? Like, when did they get the news that Abby is like, you know, a bad guy now? Like where, how is it that that Abby is completely unable to just like talk her way out of any of this? <laughs> like has right, to right. kill every every she comes across. That's so sad to me. So that that makes me think it's it's the developer's inability to recognize that at any moment and like that like loving someone could mean anything other than killing everyone yeah. else. Right, <laughs> like, right. Yeah, and that and that that loving other pe- loving someone in that sense is the goal. It's the primary purpose, right? It's our primary goal in the dystopia is to discover yes. our humanity through our ability to love each other. Oh my god, yeah. through romantic love or through um, you know a familial kind of love, like a kinship right. love. Like that's what saves us and what makes us human. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's equity. It's justice. It's systems that are fair. It's yeah. things that work. Like this is what humanity is, not this interpersonal um, dyad above all else, right? The, the, the love your family, oh, yeah. love your friends thing. Like that's easy. That doesn't make you human, um, especially when you're murdering everyone. So, yeah. you know, and I think, and, and it's, tough because this game will be celebrated or if it hasn't I think it has been critiqued from what I could tell I'm just coming out of it from what I could tell the trans representation has gotten a lot of discussion and has been critiqued Mm -hmm. 
um, the trauma porn aspect of it, you know, I mean, but that's what dystopias are. I don't think you can levy that charge against um, Naughty Dog, the trauma porn aspect against this game and against Naughty Dog. It is what we get in our dystopian, you know, fictional diet, diet of, of, this is what we get. It's trauma, their suffering, their survival. Those motifs are hardwired into dystopian um, conventions. Well, we need our departures from those conventions, right? And and this, and you have to take a risk. And if you're going to be mass media, yeah. it is going to be like, you know, celebrated as art. It's going to be celebrated for making all these, taking all these risks. That's the kind of risk taking that we need is to depart from, you know, the dystopia as trauma, as you know, um, destruction as nihilist, as nihilism format, format. There are lots of possibilities, even in the dystopia to do something else. Um, but what I wanted so now, if, if I can answer your question that you posed last time, um, I haven't yeah. really pushed out what I would want at the end of the last of us two, but I can tell you what, it's not choking Abby in the water, in the ocean. And like, barely surviving both of them all the three of them barely leaving it is teaming up you know why at some point in that story abby is the most badass character in a lot of ways and as you say she has her own symmetrical uh destructions and um transferences and self-object creations to save her own soul right that that's how it's pitched uh but there's a lot of potential i thought in her over Ellie and what I would love to see and Lev who was a really awesome character yeah. in so many ways Absolutely. he was like sensitive and smart and philosophical and there were some tropes there where you're like oh don't map this onto the Asian character like in stereotypical yeah. ways but I think they kind of yeah. enough of it to distance from that at times so there was potential in that characterization for me to some extent I want to see those people build an enclave together like you inherited yeah other societies that you don't actually seem to enjoy they don't work so where is your formation at the end of that y'all should all be in the same boat getting away from the crazy government militia group getting away go go to catalina island go to these spaces create your own island together i wanted all of them in the boat going off like um abby has the connection to the fireflies and to their agenda you know, Ellie is immune and Lev is like a philosopher. What more do you need? You know, like you have all the ingredients for success right there. So yep. I want that ending. And what Abby or what Ellie does forsake is a kind of um, normative, more normative, still queer family unit mm-hmm. and structure. Right. She forsakes that. And it doesn't have to be an either or it doesn't. I mean, what she chose was revenge instead of that. And Dino was like, if you go after Abby, we're done. Like, that's not, I can deal with your trauma and your post-trauma and your flashbacks and your panic attacks in the barn, but I will not deal with this blinding rage that makes no freaking sense. Right. So, you know, understandably that family did that unit dissolved, but none of it, it doesn't have to be either or. It can be all. Like our definitions of what uh, the future, of what expansiveness, of what queerness look like, um, you know, don't have to be bound by that. Bring that little cute baby on in that boat too. Yes, like everybody, everybody get in the boat. The boat. You know, that's where I want to be. That's where I would be going with this. Um, and and you know, people are like, happiness is boring. It's not not now no mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like let's figure out what that could be it doesn't have to be disingenuous it doesn't have to be glazed over you know maybe, maybe there's some ways to do that um maybe maybe you're still grimy and you're still struggling and you're still fighting but let's put those ingredients together and move forward create a path yeah and the other thing i will say this is kind of my own kind of critical and personal investments or um I don't know, sort of pressure that I place on queer theory and queer game studies is that if a fight for racial liberation and equity is not at the heart of it, then it's really not a fight for a queerness that works for me. Right. It's not the kind of queerness that I can envision. So you can have all the queerness and all the things, but if it doesn't have this radical, um, you know, orientation toward an anti-racist future, 
and call out, you know, these structures and these conventions for what they are and make that a part of the part of the part of the critique, a part of the resistance, um, yeah. you know, then it doesn't work well enough for me too. So you got to have some black people in that boat and they got to be pretty cool and contribute as well. And you can't just murder them all while we make our queer utopian escape here. <laughs> so that's how I would reframe the game at the end somewhere along. I wouldn't even wait to the end. You needed that break like a third of the way into it. Like that's the, game, the rest of the game that I want to play. Right. They're like the gun portal shows up, a hole opens in the temporal layering of the last of us two. Marlene steps through it to yes. take back the deliberation. Yes. She's like, come on. You know, like that's that's right. Everybody that's my problem. Yeah. Happiness is so not boring. Like I, I was just thinking like when you were saying about like the idea of this like dyadic relationship. When there's like a, a a a happy ever after that results from that type of relationship formulation, I I actually do find that a little bit boring. But this type of happiness is that other kind that would come from right. equity and, you know, you mentioned a bunch of things about like the kinds of structures that you would want to see as how people do mutual care in an apocalyptic or dystopian scenario, and happy happiness or um, goodness, like resulting from like the formulation of those structures, super, super not boring because we literally never see that. And something that we don't see in media could not possibly be boring because it's literally new and different from all of this other crap that we've been lingering in for so long. My students tell me again and again, it is boring. They're like, we don't want to make utopias. It will be boring. Well, their argument is that you can't have a utopian video game because it wouldn't be fun to play. So when I make them redesign these games and I say create a critical utopia, they argue that it wouldn't be the franchise anymore, first of all, like Far Cry. They would try to make that. They did it, though. And it was freaking cool. But anyway, initially their arguments are that it wouldn't make fun gameplay. What are we going to do? You know, we're just going to like trade goods. Like we're going to have a commune. You know, the action is is central and the action has to be violent and the action has to be disruptive. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, so they so they say that they don't want to play this, that this, you know, it's like the old Batman versus Superman debate that like the why is Batman so popular and there's so many Batman movies because it's melancholic like Batman is freaking dysfunctional and has post-traumatic stress himself and Superman was boring because perfection is boring but perfection I mean there's like so much ground to cover between perfection and like cutting a swath through people as you like insist on your diet like oh at all costs oh yeah I mean To me, that's a failure of a game design imagination to be unable to innovate a mechanic that would be compelling that doesn't correspond with senseless mass murder and anti-Blackness. Like, there's a lot of things that are fun to do and meaningful interactions that are not that. There are those opportunities. And, you know, I think we have to remember that utopia is not perfection. You know, there's a misunderstanding that utopia is perfection, that it's paradise. No, utopia is a vision of unmet desires and how those desires are met. And so if we think about it that way, I think there's a lot of drama potentially in a utopia uh, because you're striving to meet desires, right, in an imperfect way. And that road would be difficult to achieve, uh, naturally difficult to achieve. Not only have we not imagined it, but even if we could imagine it, there will be a lot of dissenters. There will be a lot of conflict and strife. And there will be a lot of like problem solving and a lot of other things that would pop up in trying to move toward what meeting unmet desires actually looks like, you know, and it's not going to be paradise. But yeah, those folks at the end of The Last of Us too, you know, Abby and Lev and Ellie and, you know, Dina, like bring all of them, put them in the boat. Nora, Marlene, like get all those people, get them in the boat and put them together. And I guarantee you it's not going to be paradise, right? But it's going to be better than those options that we have, um, in those other spaces and those other communities. Yes. Well, I think we should, we should probably call it there, but it has been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for, right for coming. 
No, thank you for processing this with me. Like that helps me pull together my feelings and thoughts about this game. And it was hard to shake off. Like now I feel like I can move on with my week, you know, after (laughs) playing it so aggressively. And now I can just like put it away. (laughs) I feel that. Oh my gosh. This has been Queers at the End of the World. Next time, we'll be reading three, yes, three books on survival in the wilderness. My Side of the Mountain by Jean Craighead George, Hatchet by Gary Paulson, and Into the Wild by John Krakauer. Think bears, think fires, think edible conflicts. It's going to be great. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa, who you can find for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode was La Fine des Ericots by Tintamare. Hey, and I just wanted to say thanks to the YouTuber Danzigo8 who made both of the walkthroughs I used for The Last of Us and The Last of Us 2. Um, I don't really know much about him except that he's British and he loves his dogs, but I spent a lot of time with his creations this year and uh, just wanted to say thanks. You can find us at QueerWorlds.com or at QueerWorldsPodcast on Instagram. If you enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us. It helps people find us, and it lets us know that you're out there listening. And tell a friend who you think will enjoy it. That's by far the best way for folks to find out about the podcast. Part of the point of all this is for us to talk to our community, so we'd love to hear back from you. Get in touch with us at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. All right. Good luck out there, dear hearts. 